0: Let us begin. Now, most of you, if not all of you, have been here before, but the format, basically, of what we do here is any questions you guys have from the message, which was brief this morning, which would then flow into any questions you have from previous messages, which would then open up to questions you have in general. And I saw somebody here have, like, a, um, a guide on the book of Revelation, so I want to initially just punt all things pertaining. No, somebody on a seat had this book. It was yellow and, yeah... Daniel pointed that to me, so I need to be ready, so I'm just punting right now in advance on all things pertaining to, no. So questions, thoughts, complaints, a haiku um, from this morning in the last couple of weeks. I can't let you go early, because otherwise you'll mess up the children's church downstairs, so we've got to be here. So um, I'll just have to start doing some more jokes, otherwise. You don't want that. Yes? Yeah. No. (laughs) See, that was easy. Uh, (laughs) There's the yellow book. There's the yellow book right there. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Linda. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We need need someone to go. Oh, Bryce is on it. On it, Bryce. Thank you.
1: Okay, so two sort of different things. Um so when you were talking about this uh the verse that says through him all men might believe. So I mean, I guess I'm just assuming that that meant for that specific time period because obviously it's only through the Holy Spirit that anyone believes. So, do you,
0: I well Okay, let me see if I get what you're saying. You're saying, how do we understand the sentence that John the Baptist, John the Witness, according to John's Gospel, is John the Witness, um, was uh, sent that people might believe when we know people only believe through the work of the Holy Spirit. And to which I would say, why does it have to be either or? I absolutely agree with you. No one believes except from the Holy Spirit um, opening their eyes, opening their heart. But... The new birth, according to the New Testament, is credited to two sources. Credited to the Holy Spirit, John 3, you're born again by the Spirit of God. But according to James and First Peter, we were also brought by his own will, James 1, he, we were brought forth as a kind of first fruits by the Word of God. Or First Peter 1, um, knowing that you've been born again by the living and abiding Word of God. So the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God and gives life. And that's where John and you and I can come in because we can speak the word. We can sow that seed that God gives growth. And so you can really speak, not in a fully sense. We are not fully responsible for people believing, but we are responsible. We share responsibility. So John, people believed because John was sent because he scattered the seed of God's word which the Holy Spirit gave growth to. Does that make sense? So you don't want to credit John with the fullness of people coming to faith, but I think... Understanding it rightly, we can speak of John came that people might believe. You and I speak the gospel that people might believe. And we are, in a sense, part of that causality. We're part of that process, the the human agent. Um, We don't get the credit. John makes it clear, people born not of the will of man or the flesh or of bloods, but of the will of God. Ultimate credit, ultimate responsibility goes back to God. But in that framework, John was sent that all might believe. Is that? I mean, that—that's how I'd put it together. So I wouldn't want to make it either or. Well, was it John or was it the Holy Spirit? I'd say yes. It was the Holy Spirit giving the growth to what John said. Yes. No. Maybe. <laughs> well. Okay.
1: Be, <laughs> okay. I mean, because he was, John was considered or is considered the last Old Testament Old prophet. Testament prophet. Yes. So there were, you know, obviously people before him and. But then, I mean, he wasn't there for much longer after that because, you know, he was...
0: But John's witness continues in the Gospel of John, right? Because we go through chapter 1 and we get the John pointing out Jesus, behold the Lamb of God, and people today can read that and hear John's testimony. I mean, there's a sense in which John, the Gospel writer, is recording John, the witness's witness, so that people might respond to his testimony. We get the actual words coming out of John's mouth, preserved in Scripture. So to use the language of Hebrews, though dead, he still speaks, right? Just, so even though he is not with us, John the Baptist still speaks in the text of Scripture, and his witness and his testimony still goes out, which people can believe and respond to. That testimony is also, because it's inscripturated, God's testimony and God's Word, but it's not less than John's testimony.
1: Okay, so, but I mean, as far as I know, this is the only place where a specific person has been given that much credit, where like none of the other prophets before or after didn't say anything about, you know, through them all would believe, right?
0: That might be in part why he's considered the greatest. But I got I gotta check, but if I'm not mistaken, even in Acts 10, when uh, God sends a vision of, of an angel to Cornelius, I'm curious what the language is about the message that Peter was gonna send, but I think it's gonna be similar. It's a man whose message you must believe, or something like okay. that. But but in the context of John 1 through 118, given what verse if you just we'll solve it in John, whatever he means in verse seven of chapter one, he came as a witness bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Whatever that means, it's going to be in harmony with verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed, so now there's the pickup, John came that people might believe, now we're going to learn something about those who believed. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, which is to say not of who your parents are, not of genetic descent, which would have been a, a big deal for the Jewish people, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. The will of the flesh would be, they're not, these are people not born because of, uh, we, have, we have children born every day in our land who are born because people were passionate, right? They're, they're born because of the will of the flesh. None of the will of man would just speak to determination, but the will of God. So in one and the same section of John, he says he came that all might believe, but he makes it very clear ultimate credit and ultimate causality is going to God. So in that context, we're fine. It's only if someone thinks when you say John came that people might believe you're discounting divine agency you're going to have a problem. So given that where it sits, I'm just fine with it as long as we understand ultimately this isn't about the will of the flesh, this isn't about the will of man, this isn't about blood, this is about the will of God. Is that? No. Right. Well, I think the all in, and you're getting up a whole another issue. Um, <laughs> but why not? Okay. Um, all is always part of a group, right? So if you say the choir was everyone here, you mean everyone who's part of the choir, right? You d- you don't mean um, Kim Jong Un. Right? Fair enough? <laughs> At least I don't think you mean that. Um, and, and so I think in John's gospel, all and everyone means without distinction, not just Jewish people. John came as a witness, not just for the Jewish people, but everyone. Because clearly John doesn't speak to everybody. There are people in China, there are people in North America who didn't hear John the Baptist. But John came indiscriminately so that everyone, not just the Jewish people, that everyone could believe. Um, I, I, I would guess that's the sense in which all is used Anyway. Certainly, people who had died long before him are not included in that all. You know, J- John didn't come so that Ahab would believe. It's not going to make that doesn't make sense. So you've always got to qualify all. You know, all means all. Well, it means all of the group that you're talking about. What is that group? Always. So, okay. Did that spin off a can of worms or no? Oh. We're okay. Oh, Sorry. Linda, you had a second okay, question, so though. so I had a second, second question. one, totally
1: <laughs> different from that. Fair enough. And with a nod to Lois in our Thursday night Bible study. So you said um, something about creating, which is, you know, a common phrase that most people use nowadays with, without really thinking about it. But, I mean, really, God is the only creator. So we may assemble things that are already here, even artists and you know, I mean there's a block of marble that they might carve a statue out of. But they're not really, you know, creating something because they're using something that was already created. So we don't create anything. We assemble or form or put together. Right? You see where I'm going?
0: Oh, I see where you're going. (laughs) I I think you're, I think you might be being a little pedantic. A little too picky. No, no, here's here's the thing. Like I said at the beginning of the message, everything matters with what you mean. You're saying in an ultimate sense. Ultimately, we don't create anything. To which I'll say, fair enough. I don't think people always mean it in an ultimate sense when they say it. So again, as long as you're communicating clearly, as long as I don't think anyone's misunderstanding me when I say an artist created something or a person who crafts wood created something, that no one thinks I'm saying ex nihilo, they out of nothing made something. I'm fine using that. I certainly wouldn't want to communicate that, that our creative work is always built upon a foundation of God's creative work. There's nothing We wouldn't be to create if God didn't make us and sustain us. There wouldn't be stuff for us to work with if God didn't make it and sustain it. So all of the creative processes that we are involved in are all contingent, subordinate, and dependent upon God's ultimate creative work. It all takes place within God's creation. So as long as people understand that, I think we can meaningfully speak of being creative or look what I made. Um, As long as we're not ascribing look what I made is anything similar to look what God made out of nothing by speaking. So, yes. But generally when
1: people use that word, they're trying to say that they did make something you know, like independently on their own, I mean that's today it seems like generally when that word is used, it's you know it's not in any way alluding to God. it's just they did something on their own and are looking for the glory for it
0: that that may no that may well be the case we more and more and more people uh people are becoming more and more lovers of self and autonomous or actually today you're more likely to hear that you could only make it because you live in a community, sorry, right? No, that's, that's the, actually more of the logic today, that that's not your business, that's not your property because the community put you in a anyway, we won't go there. Um, yes, if, if you thought I might have been saying that this morning, I wasn't, let me start by clarifying that. I, and if I think I'm likely to miscommunicate, I certainly would change the way I say it. I'm not as worried about miscommunicating, that's all
1: because everyone right. wouldn't understand right. but in the right. world in general i guess cuz i hear that term used quite a bit and i always just i never say it out loud to anyone but i just think to myself you know you couldn't have done anything if god hadn't given you right. the materials
0: you use first right
1: or you know and the talent to it and just giving you yourself in general
0: in, amen so in, indeed and amen and amen other thoughts, questions, opinions. Oh, what mic? Microphone? 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 Microphone?
1: Microphone? Yeah, I I agree. Like I I hear some women even on Facebook sometimes they would say like, uh, "What's your superpower?" My superpower is making babies or something like that. So they say they're they, they're the ones who make the babies not god like they're saying i make babies i'm the superhero right. you know what i'm saying
0: right. right no and this this goes no this goes all the way back to the tower yeah. right look we're going to make a name for ourselves <laughs> look what we have done whether it's making a tower making a baby making a business making a painting look at me mm. yeah that's yeah i just think yeah.
1: they're lost but that's why we still need to love them because we were yeah. lost as well and they're just lost and they need love
0: Amen. Yeah. Amen. Amen and amen and amen. Anything else? I got one or two threads I can follow if you guys don't, so I'll give you guys first swing and then I'll pick back up. Yes, Bryce.
1: I got one, Jeremy. So piggybacking off of what what Linda's first question was, the idea of how... Even several places in John, you have the idea: this happened
0: that you may believe. Yeah. So it's something that I've wrestled through too, and correct me if I'm oversimplifying this or whatnot. But
1: <clears throat> excuse me, the conclusion I came to is the idea that just because the the uh, the ends are set by the Holy Spirit doesn't uh, doesn't
0: uh, nullify the means. The idea that is that right. means aren't irrelevant. It's because the Holy Spirit has the control over yeah. what those means in,
1: uh, result in. Right. No, no, Is that oversimplified, no, or
0: yeah, no? No, you're, you're. I think you're spot on. I mean, and again, it gets back to speaking clearly and, communi- and Like in anything, it's just about communicating. And, and where we have common assumptions and where we have common understandings, we can speak more freely. And where you're speaking with people, you don't have common assumptions and common understandings with, you need to be more clear. Um, so, yeah, like, like, take, like, I think it was Plato. It talked about different causalities. He used the example of a sculptor. And so you have the efficient means, you have the uh, instrumental means, you have the, uh, so like, there's the stone as the material means. There's no statue without the stone. The stone is the cause, in one sense, of the statue. But then there's the sculptor and his mind and his plan. But there's no statue without the chisel. And so the chisel is the means. Uh, and so you can speak of um, this, this statue was made by, and ascribe agency to a number of different things. It was made by a chisel. It was made by a sculptor. It was made by a God who's spoken into being. It was, You know what I mean? And, um, and all of those, if you're being clear and precise, are meaningful and accurate things to say. And when we ascribe ultimate agency, it goes to God and God alone. And we don't want to be in any way uh, unclear on that. But, but yeah, you can speak, or I can show you, look at this thing my child made, and I think between you and me, you're not going to misunderstand me, and I'm just showing you a Lego thing. Well, clearly, there's a good example. Without the Lego company making and molding the bricks, he's not making anything. And you can take that a step further back without the living God to speak so that there's stuff for the Lego company to make bricks out of, there's not going to be Lego bricks, right? But if you grant all that, there was a five-year-old kid who made a little tower car thing, you know? and we can speak meaningfully of that within that context. Um, Yeah, okay. Yes, Candy. Oh, microphone, microphone,
1: microphone, microphone. When I read this verse before, I've never ever attributed anything actually to John, because I I don't know, I looked at verse seven and said he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, not about himself, any more than you speaking on Sunday or anybody else speaking about the light, The light is the subject here, I think, not John, not, he brought it, God's spirit, enabled anybody that listens, just like on a Sunday morning or anywhere else, nobody does anything without the power of God. He's not speaking about himself, it's not John, John did nothing. John isn't elevated, only the light, he's there as an ambassador, right? I mean, that's the way I've always seen it.
0: Well, well, let's jump to the other end of John's gospel, to chapter 20, because we get a similar statement to the one Linda picked up on. This time it's John. You see, the problem is you got two Johns, John the Evangelist, the Gospel writer, and John the Baptist. So John the Baptist came that I might believe. In 20, we get John the Gospel Writer's purpose in writing, 20, 30, and 31. Now many Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John basically tells us, I had a lot of material to select from. I had a lot of material. In fact, elsewhere he says there's enough to fill the whole world with books if I were to write everything Jesus did or said. So I've I've selected specifically this material, which accounts for why so much of John's gospel is unique to John. 80% of John does not appear in the other gospels. And when you consider the fact that all four gospels have the crucifixion, almost the totality of John's non-crucifixion, non-passion week material is unique to John's gospel. And here we get the intentionality. He had a lot of source material. He had a lot of things to choose from. He handpicked these things that you might believe. So that's the whole purpose of the gospel. The gospel starts with John came so that people would believe. He gets to the end of his gospel. I wrote this that you believe. And so you start to get the point of when an author gives you their thesis statement... <laughs> It helps you interpret the rest of the book. So this gives us two things, that John is a book of signs, these many other signs that Jesus do, and these were written so you might believe. So if you go back to chapter 1, or is it 2, after, his, after the wedding at Cana, look at Verse 11. And you see how this ties into John's thesis. Yeah, when you're trying to read a a book of the Bible, it helps to get some framework to interpret it. What's he talking about? What's the author's purpose? And sometimes you have to guess or you have to formulate your own hypothesis. It's really nice when the author tells you. So when you see something like 2.11, remember, many other signs Jesus did. These are written so that you might believe. 2.11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's a pretty significant marker in the book because we've got that conjoining now of a sign and belief. Jesus did many other signs, but these were written so you might believe. Here's his first sign, and the disciples believed. And so as you study John's gospel, that becomes a big marker that now we're beginning to move forward. We're starting the signs and the sign material. And he, he gives us the second sign, and then he stops numbering them after the second one, and we're expected to sort of keep the count going. And you generally get to about seven signs prior to the resurrection. But uh, yeah, okay, that's a tangent, I'm sorry. Speaking of John's gospel, I wanna, I wanna hit something that I said in the message that I wanna try to clarify. Um, if you go back to John 1, what, the point I was trying to emphasize at the end there was that John's gospel is the gospel of faith. He says it clearly in verse 12, um, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We saw it in chapter 3, Uh, 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. So John is emphatic that if you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. And yet, in a number of places in John's gospel, there's believing and there's believing. So on the one hand, John is emphatic that it's salvation by faith alone. And yet, and I wanted to show you a couple more examples of this, there's faith and there's faith. Or or to put it different ways, He's gonna wants to define what he means by faith, because we get at the end of two, um, and I wanna I wanna pick this a little further. I, the chapter divisions in your Bibles were added um, about nine hundred years ago, and I sometimes they make errors. And one of the places where I what I thought that was the verse markers. I thought the chapters were earlier than that. Oh no, no worries. Um, yeah, the verse markers and were about five hundred years ago. I I think the, the chapters are 900 years ago, I could be wrong. But one of the ones that I would disagree with, I would start chapter 3 at 2.23. Uh, I think that's John's intro to the Nicodemus encounter. And I, I briefly hit it in, in my message, but I want to show you why. Um, because he sets this up. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And John's not stupid enough to not remember that that's the exact formula that he used in one twelve to speak about those who became children of God, and so what he says and that follows is meant to be confu- not confusing. It's meant to make us slow down and go, well, wait, wait, what's going on? Because remember, in one twelve, to as many as received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Many believed in his name, and you'd expect something like, and Jesus gave them the right to become children of God to follow. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That's not what you'd expect, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew it was in man. Now there was a man, notice that connection, he knew it was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Do you see how that last paragraph of two really sets up the Nicodemus encounter? There are a bunch of people who saw signs and believe something about Jesus. Let me show you one of them. Nicodemus shows up. He's a man. He saw signs. And he testifies to what he knows about Jesus. You're from God. He believes that much. He believes Jesus is from God. And then Jesus makes it clear that whatever Nicodemus is at, and later on in the gospel, he will come to faith. But here, Jesus says, and no one, I mean, people, Nicodemus, I think, is one of the most misunderstood um, passages in the New Testament. You hear stories about Nicodemus, he's brave, and he's afraid, and he sneaks out at night because he's afraid of the Pharisees. Whatever Nicodemus is doing, he is not a believer right now. Jesus makes it abundantly clear Um, in verse 10 of chapter 3. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not know these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I've told you earthly things, and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, Jesus says plainly to Nicodemus, you don't believe me. You won't receive my testimony. You don't believe what I have to say. Now, Nicodemus shows up two more times, and he does eventually become a believer, but he is absolutely not one now. What is he doing? I think he's doing what the Pharisees did in chapter 1. If you remember in chapter 1, John the Baptist was, was creating a stir. And so what happened? Verse chapter 119. This is the testimony of the John. Of the John, wow. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? What happened? The Pharisees sent a, uh, an investigative committee. There's word, there's a prophet at work by the Jordan. And what's striking is they don't really care what his message is. They only want to know what authority he does it by. Do you have your paperwork in order? Do you have a license to do baptisms? In effect. Um, And he confessed. And they said, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Who then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. They said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even by, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal are not worthy to untie. So we've already seen um, investigative groups sent from Jerusalem to, to see who this guy is. So John 3 tells us, there's a man of the Pharisees and Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know. Not I know, we know. I think this is the same thing happening. The Pharisees send Nicodemus, they want him to go by night, I would guess, so that they haven't publicly chosen sides till they investigate. They're basically something on the lines of, we now are hearing reports of a miracle-working prophet. We're not sure what we make of him. Do we want to endorse him? Do we want to back him or not? Nicodemus, will you go and check him out? But do it... Do it um, you know, subtly so that if we don't want to get on board with them, we haven't been seen making friends with them. That is also hinted at at the end of 2, right? Jesus, verse 24 of 2, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man. He doesn't need the Pharisees' endorsement. doesn't need it at all. He isn't concerned about whether or not the Pharisees back him are you know, on, on his team. doesn't need them at all. Nicodemus shows up, we which then sets up Jesus' response in 3.11, which said, well, the ESV has a little footnote here. There's a footnote. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness about what we have seen, which I think is a slight bit of teasing back at Nicodemus. Nicodemus' opening gambit, teacher, we know. And down Jesus is saying, well, well, we know a thing or two ourselves, we do. But the, the footnote there of what we have seen, but you, is Plural. ESV footnote, you as plural, absolutely is the case. Jesus is now not just responding to Nicodemus, but to the whole group of people he represents, I believe. So Jesus draws our attention back to Nicodemus' as we, speak, we, we know you're a teacher from God. And then Jesus, literally in Greek, and the ESV's footnote here is very helpful, but you all do not receive our testimony. If I have told you all earthly things, and you all do not believe, how can you all believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's, I think, the framework to understand the Nicodemus encounter. Nicodemus is sent by the Jews to size up Jesus, which I think also helps explain why Jesus gives him the Heisman. I mean, have you ever read John 3 and thought, man, that's kind of abrupt, Jesus. It doesn't sound bad. Nicodemus, rabbi, teacher, we know you're from God, for no one does the signs that you do unless God is with him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That sounds kind of abrupt, right? But if Nicodemus is coming in effect, giving Jesus his messianic interview for the job title, expecting a certain amount of, you know, um, I'm coming to size you up. I'm coming to measure you. The Pharisees we're here to investigate you. Then Jesus is basically saying, I reject your right to size me up. What makes you think you'd see truth? No truth if you saw it. What makes you think you're in a position to rightly see anything? You can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. You're dead. You're not going to be able to size me up accurately. That's, that's my understanding of what's going on with the Nicodemus God. But whatever's going on, he's not a believer. And Jesus seems to be speaking to him as though he represents a group of people when he switches to the plural there in verse 11. So anyway, sorry, you got me off a long tangent on Nicodemus, but it's, 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 uh, it's important because John is showing us That just because someone thinks Jesus is a prophet and just because someone has nice things to say about Jesus does not make them a child of God. That what we're calling for in faith is a bit more robust than a simple tipping of the hat to this good teacher from God. Go Go to John 8. Now in John 8, Jesus reveals his deity to the Jews clearly. And this was one of the things they stumbled over. I was trying to say this morning that you don't get to receive Jesus, the Jesus if you're an imagining. Um, you know, sometimes people say things like, Well, the God, my God, wouldn't, you know, send anyone to hell, my God wouldn't, whatever. Well, your God can't, because your God doesn't exist. What matters is the God who is, not the God you like to think is. Uh, and that sounds kind of rough, but Jesus is insistent. So, okay, let me, let me just show you. 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now that he is supplied by the English translators. The Greek's just me, unless you believe that I am. It could mean I am he. That is a legitimate way to translate it. But as you, as you see through the rest of this, this ends at 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now there is a clear claim to the divine name. The name revealed at the burning bush to Moses, Yahweh. Um, I think he's doing it as early as 24. So he's he's teaching about his deity. And look at the response. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, this is back in 25, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say and much to judge, and he who sent me is true, and I declare the word that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was speaking about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, or I am, and I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Okay? Okay? Good, they believe in him. Let's see where this goes. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These people who believe in Jesus are not yet free. They answered him, the they being the Jews who had believed in him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone, you know, except for the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Philistines. And the Canaan, well, except for them, we've never been a slave to anybody. <laughs> I think they understand he's talking about sin, or they're just really brash. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever um, practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, remember, I said in my message, what people rejected was they loved the darkness, they loved their sin. And so when Jesus starts pressing up on sin, that's. Anyway, so these are the Jews who believed in him. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. Now, John is not stupid. He's doing this intentionally. He's making it, whoa, I thought if you believed in Jesus. Yes, if you have faith in Jesus, you're safe. Yet, it's a little more complicated than a simple slogan you can put on a bumper sticker. That's, that's what John's doing. Either that or he's stupid. He's contradicting himself. I don't think he's doing that. So we're supposed to go, well, wait a second. I thought you said, everyone who believes then these people. And, and keep reading. It becomes clear. These guys are not on his team. Um, verse 37 uh, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. You're not children of God. You're children of the devil. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's offspring, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Now, he's using father, not, we think of parenting primarily in like the genetic CSI sense, and you, know, you go on Moripovich Povich, and he does the test, and you reveals, that's not the Jewish sense. This fundamentally here is it's a, it's a functional sonship. So like father, like son. And so you're Abraham's children if you're doing the works Abraham did, and you're the devil's children if you're doing the works the devil did. And that's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the, the functional um, sonship he's talking about here and so uh uh, verse 41 you were doing the works your father did they said to him we are not born of sexual morality we have one father even god jesus said to them if god were your father you would love me why because the father loves him for i came from god and i'm not and i am not i came from god and i am here i came not of my own accord but he sent me why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, he said to the Jews who had believed in him. That's what John just lays out. And so you're left going, apparently there's believing and there's believing. So we're saved by believing, but there's believing and there's believing. And so you work through John's gospel and you try to figure out what, he's, what does it mean to believe. Um, you're absolutely saved by faith. But James talks about a dead faith, right? Will that faith save you, James 2? And so you, you got to read attentively, and John starts to fill in some of those gaps of what we're talking about here. But that's, that's what I was trying to deal with this morning in brief, granted in all 15 minutes, but um, okay, we got five minutes. Any questions on that? It's, it's a huge topic and, and critically important, but uh, I could imagine someone might be confused or have issues. Oh, it's a like microphone for Cody. Just a little thing going into that way you were talking about that whole uh, there's believing and then there there's believing and then there's believing you know yeah. something that just kind of always helped me along with that one I don't know if this adds to it or anything but you know they always say I believe in Jesus well yeah so do the demons you know demons right. believe in Jesus but it's like I think what always made it make a lot of sense for me was the aspect of loving it's like do you believe Jesus or do you believe Jesus and love him. Sure, no, that's no, that's absolutely the case. The demons demons probably have more accurate theology than you or I do. They just hate it, right? The demons believe God is one and tremble. The demons are not confused about who God is and what is his word, what isn't his word. They just hate it. Um, and so the Bible commats, com, wow, commats, comes at saving faith a number of different directions, talking about those who who believe, who receive, those who love the truth. Um, Those are all different ways of speaking about saving faith. And so it involves the affections. It's not purely a mental assent issue. Do you think this fact is true? There's an entrusting of yourself to Christ. These are all different ways of speaking about that, that that the New Testament wants to unpack. And so on the one hand, we want to make the gospel simple but we can so simplify it that it becomes a slogan, it becomes a bumper sticker, and then getting back to where we started, misunderstanding and the potential for misunderstanding is, is rife because we live... No, no other time in human history has there been a people more at peace with contradictory ideas... That's one of the fruit that post-modernity has has brought in relativism is this notion that truth is relative, and so you can believe contradictory things, and that's just fine. In fact, it might make you a bit more sophisticated. And so there used to be a much clearer connection between if this is true, then this is how we have to live in response to this being true. You can't assume that anymore. And so we're saved by faith, but if you look at the end of verse 3, I mean... Chapter 3, if you look at the end of John 3. It's assuming that believing is so closely associated with obeying that we get whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. You want to go, well, wait a second, what about those who believed but didn't obey? And John's assuming that category doesn't exist, right? Um, So he's assuming that faith leads to action, just as James does, just as Jesus does. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I say? And yet today, more than any other time in human history, we've got a people that don't think belief leads to action. And so, are we saved by faith alone? Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But what we mean by that and what the unbeliever on the street means by that can be radically different. And John's gospel goes at lengths multiple times to show us there's believing and there's believing. So that's the important thing for us is to get beyond the slogan, to talk about what it means to believe, what it means to follow, what it means to believe something's true. I mean, I'll mean, i give you an example. If you believed there was an explosive in this room about to go off in a minute, it would affect the way you acted. You'd all be running for the door, Right? That's the type of connection. If you believed that the food put in front of you at lunchtime was poisonous, unless you had a death wish, you wouldn't eat it. It would affect what you do. That's, that's sort of the New Testament assumption, that if you believe Jesus is God, it's going to affect what you do. Anyway, our time is up. Um, God bless. Have a great um, Christmas, if I don't see you till then. And hopefully you guys will come back tonight at 5.40 for the youth program. God bless.